Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Continuing Medical Education Podcast. Join us each week to discuss the most pressing topics in cardiology and gain valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice. Welcome to Interview with the Experts, a podcast series from Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Education. My name is Dr. Luke Birchall, and I lead heart failure for adults with congenital heart disease here at Mayo Clinic. And today I am joined by my colleague and friend, Dr. Mauricio Villavicencio, the Director of Heart Lung Transplant here at Mayo Clinic. Yeah, thanks very much for the wonderful invitation. I'm thrilled, you know, to talk about congenital issues that are uh, pertained uh, to a heart transplant because I'm, I'm not by anywhere near to be a, a congenital heart surgery expert, but I, I come uh, from the transplant world and then there's a connection in there that's very exciting to talk about. And I think that together we're just seeing more and more of these patients, aren't we? Yeah, I, I, I think we are, especially here at Mayo, there's a fair amount of referrals, uh, you know, for, for heart transplantation, but all over the country, you know, the congenital teams are doing such an amazing job just to get this patient through and get to the adulthood. You know, we get uh, have this wonderful tool and we are learning more and more how to get good outcomes, you know, and heart transplant. So as you transplant the patients, you know, quicker and with better outcomes, then you get more people coming around for this, uh, you know, amazing tool that we have. And Mauricio, so many of my patients that I meet, they come and tell me the same story, and that is that they've been told that at some point they're going to need a transplant. This is particularly some of the young Fontan patients that I'm meeting. So they've been told that they might need a transplant, but actually they haven't been told a lot about what actually is a transplant. So I'm interested from a surgeon's perspective, what do you say to patients and families the first time you're meeting them to discuss the possibility of transplant? I think I tell them that is, uh, you know, something that until I, I didn't see, you know, how amazing it is. I, I didn't have a great sense of it because essentially, you know, from one moment to another, you get from a patient that has end-stage heart failure, you know, to have normal function. And then we can, you know, reconfigure his anatomy and then have, uh, you know, a normal anatomy. So all of a sudden, after so many years, you know, congenital heart disease and having trouble, all of a sudden you have a, a normal heart. And, and that's simply amazing when you're able, uh, you know, to see that. One patient of mine told me a little bit ago once in a heart transplant, I didn't know how it was to feel just to walk around the hospital like I wanted all the time, but I couldn't. And uh, right a few days after transplant. So, was, um, so I would say, you know, we um, uh, provide a substantial benefit because of the gift of life that a donor gives us and uh, we can make a great transformation. And then, the downside will be, you know, we'll need immune suppression and you'll need a lot of special care. So that's what we're here for. That's right. I think that that's something we all emphasize is that it's often exchanging one chronic condition for another. It does require lifelong care, just like congenital heart disease does. And that relationship with the transplant team is going to be the new relationship that our patients forge after their transplant. One of the questions that I'm asked by the referring cardiologist is, 
So when is the timing right? And who is the ideal candidate for transplant? Who's most likely to benefit from transplant? And again, from a surgeon's perspective, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's quite a broad uh, question because I, I, I think, um, uh, you know, it's essentially, for me in general terms, it's, it's some, somebody that, you know, the conventional therapies have been exhausted. So everything that we can offer does not transplant, you know, have been done. And then the patient is treating heart failure and uh, brings a really bad quality of life for the patient. One thing is, you know, really quality of life, but this could progress, you know, to, you know, pulmonary edema, cardiogenic shock, the most extreme uh, circumstances of, of heart failure. So we try not, you know, not to get there as much as we can. So first, you know, end-stage heart, uh, heart failure not susceptible to other uh, therapies. And I would say, who's not appropriate for transplant? I, I, I would say that it's, it's very important that the patients could be compliant and then follow medical advice. Because what, what it happens, I have had this uh, before that the patient has gotten a successful transplant, they have gone uh, home, and then they have simply not taken the, the you know, the medication. So after, you know, there's so many people wanted a heart transplant and waited on the list and then get a heart and then just lost the graft and lost the life. And because you don't take the medication is something that is so shocking that, you know, for me as a surgeon, you know, if I, we do as a team all this uh, effort and then it just, you know, not uh, get to be successful in the long term just because you don't take the immunosuppression is is quite uh, shocking. So we'd like somebody compliant, we'd like uh, somebody has support because there are many issues, especially, you know, they're quite acute, you know, in the first three months after transplant, I would say so, we need some, some support. I would like somebody that would have, hopefully, you know, single organ failure, but, you know, we have been progressing on this realm that, you know, we could do heart kidney, we could do heart liver, and we could do a heart and lung transplant with this, all of these, especially applicates to the congenital heart disease patients. So, but obviously the, the less uh, sick the patient it is in, in other organs, uh, the better. And I would say something important because we can, you know, do combined organ transplants and then uh, get away with it. But I think something very important is the patient is not that much the condition, you know, kind of poor nutrition, not moving that much in a quite, quite terminal ill state, sometimes, you know, we can uh, do a surgically perfect uh, heart liver or heart kidney transplant, and then the patient doesn't bounce back. Uh, and that's all, also very, you know, heartbreaking to see. So we mm -hmm. like somebody that has that potential, you know, to bounce back from the, yeah. you know, long-term consequences of a heart failure and then, uh, you know, get a, you know, good life. So much, so many important things that you just said. So I, I'm just going to emphasize them. I want to talk to you about the combined organ and Fontan patients, particularly heart after liver transplants. But just before I get to that, I, I wanted to summarize some of the things that I completely agree with. These patients do need a comprehensive evaluation up front because sometimes there are further things that we can do on the adult congenital side. It might be another surgery, even a high-risk surgery. It could be transcatheter interventions. It might be getting their heart rhythm under control. But that initial adult congenital evaluation, I think, is really critical. I think that the cardiologist 
particularly the local cardiologist is a great partner in this process because they often have that in-depth understanding and relationship with the patient. And people might be surprised to hear you, the surgeon, talking so much about psychosocial and adherence issues, but you're absolutely right. This is a scarce resource in the form of donor hearts. And we really want to make sure that the people who receive these transplants have great outcomes. We don't see great outcomes with people who can't take their medications reliably. And the other groups of patients would be people who continue to smoke, um, nicotine, which is an absolute contraindication, continuing issues with substance use. Again, we don't see great outcomes and people who don't have great family supports. So highlighting that information for us can be very helpful. And that's why our social workers play such a critical role in the evaluation of our patients. Your last point was on deconditioning. And I we see that, unfortunately, don't we? We see patients coming in very late stage in their disease and it starts to become a big question as to whether they're going to actually be able to recover and benefit from their transplant and, and live their best life. So thank you for all those great points. Um, but let's talk about heart after liver transplant. I was discussing this with a colleague recently, a cardiologist, and they said, oh, so are you bringing the patient back like in two different surgeries and how far apart is their heart and their liver transplant? So maybe we need to really break it down, keep it simple. Can you explain heart after liver transplant? Why would we go in that direction and why are we now doing that here at Mayo Clinic? Well, there, there's several things because sometimes, you know, from time patients might, might need just a heart only or, a, you know, as you know, a, a heart liver because they have, you know, low standing, high uh, venous pressure, which, you know, ends up in having liver disease and then uh, liver cirrhosis. And then uh, it's quite uh, tricky to do a, a transplant. If you have, suppose that you have sort of an early liver cirrhosis and you would try to do just a heart transplant. And then what you have after the operation is just terrible vasoplegia and coagulopathy because the liver would not be working. So we struggle a little bit to define the line where we need uh, the combined heart or liver. But uh, when the cirrhosis is established, uh, we definitely want to do a heart liver. And we have uh, been trying to switch the the paradigm and to do, you know, simultaneous heart liver transplant for these patients with uh, uh, cirrhosis. But uh, we have been uh, changing it to do it first, the liver. And as I said, this is, um, you know, has several reasons to do this. As I said, first, you know, if you do the liver first, uh, at the time that you do the transplant, you go on the heart alarm bypass machine, then, you know, your vasoplegia is, is less. So you suffer less, you know, with vasoconstrictors, which could end up in an organ failure. And then if the liver, you know, you implant the liver, the liver starts working immediately, you know, the coagulation and, you know, most of these patients have multiple sternotomies, you know, and a complex surgical disease. So, you know, quite a lot of raw surfaces, you would li like to have the, be the best coagulation possible. And when the liver is on, it's that much easier to accomplish. And a third reason that we would like to do that, to do the liver first, is because it, it patients that are highly sensitized, they have had many operations and they have antibodies against human tissue, they have H uh, antibodies, then uh, would like the, the, when we do our liver first, that helps taking care of those antibodies. So there are multiple reasons to do that. 
And then we, in the last few years, have emerged this uh, great tool, which is the so-called heart in a box. You could preserve the heart for a longer period of time. So what happens is while you're doing the liver, you don't want the, you know, the liver surgeons to be rushing you know, doing their, their liver transplant. So you could put the heart in a box and do the, the liver transplant, which is most of the time an easier operation than the heart transplant because there hasn't been any surgeries on the abdomen, like in the, in the Fontana transplanted patients. So, so usually a primary abdominal operation, so you could do the liver quick, no much problem, leave the heart in a box and then transplant the heart. And that brings all the benefits that we just talked about. And if people were to sort of watch a video of the heart in a box, it literally looks like a heart beating inside a, a special medical box, correct? Yes, it's, it's kind of, if you would like to think about it, I, the way I conceptualize this is that it's kind of an ECMO thing, essentially, but it's kind of sophisticated in terms that you put the heart in this device and you perfuse the aortic root essentially, most of the time kind of 700 or 800 cc per minute of blood or, you know, a, norm, a normal thermia. So you perfuse it and you perfuse it with, and then uh, that gets drained uh, into um, a pump. The pump, uh, you know, again, uh, pushes the blood flow and then goes through an oxygenator and then goes again into, into the heart. So pretty much like a sophisticated ECMO circuit so uh, and then you can monitor the hematocrit, the pressure on the outer root, how's the, the degree of um, your saturation. And one thing that we have been using and is the lactate because the heart has this ability to consume lactate as different than the other tissues. So as soon as the lactate levels on the heart and box are coming down, then we think the heart you know, is working better, better preservation. But there's a fair amount of still that we need to know because we kind of take a look like over the top of the device, <laughs> how the heart is beating. If it's beating strongly, you know, uh, we'll proceed with transplant anyway in case, you know, you have a good lactate, but then it looks like quite weak. Then we get scared. We don't proceed with the transplant. So it's, it's a very nice tool and allow us to get the heart, you know, before we have this threshold four hours to do the transplant, and now we're comfortable, you know, take eight hours with total out of the body time with the heart in for a liver heart transplant. Amazing innovation. So the heart in a box, as you were just explaining, and also heart after liver transplant, putting that liver in first because it's going to help with our blood pressure, counteracting the vasoplegia. It helps with all of those coagulation um, products that the liver um, manufactures. And it's also um, helping with sensitization. So some really exciting things happening with transplant here at Mayo Clinic, particularly benefiting our adult congenital heart disease patients. Thank you for all your leadership um, here for our program. And thanks for coming and spending time with us today. This has been very informative. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation. Thanks very much. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast by emailing cvselfstudy at mayo.edu. Be sure to subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular CME podcast on your favorite platform and tune in each week to explore today's most pressing cardiology topics with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic. This has been a Mayo Clinic podcast.